from Isaiah chapter verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And now from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit depending, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. <clears throat> My name is Rich Hansen. I've been a Presbyterian pastor over 40 years. I've been attending EP about the last five years. And I don't know who is more surprised to see me up here today, you or me. <laughs> I'm guessing it's me. So uh, if you're here two weeks ago, I kind of got a last minute call to uh, preach and did that, never expecting uh, two weeks later I would be here again. So I'm just waiting to see what John Wood has in store for us next week. <laughs> but it's a true joy to be back. I want to thank John and the session for the invitation. It's uh, very kind. If you were here two weeks ago, <clears throat> I was talking about a great adventure that being a Christian, following Jesus as his disciple, is more than simply a commitment or an obligation or a duty. It's actually an adventure. And not knowing what to preach about two weeks later, I thought we'll just continue that theme and take the next step. And so today, I'm hoping that we can think about what Jesus' resurrection has to do with that adventure. And so we are reading for our text, the very end of Paul's longest chapter in all of his letters, 1 Corinthians 15, where for 57 verses, he has a 30,000-foot view of the resurrection. 
he answers the questions that many of us think about. You know, why can we believe in the resurrection? What's the evidence for us? What does this resurrection body actually look like? What will it be like? And much, much more. And then at the end of all of this exposition and discourse about the resurrection, he lands the plane from 30,000 feet back to where you and I live. And that's the part we're going to read today, beginning with verse 54 and going to the end of the chapter, which is verse 58. Hear God's word. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, an American marketing firm was hired by an international NGO to help them market a particular medicine that was being offered to poor people but the people were suspicious of it because it was a Western medicine and they weren't taking it. And so after a lot of research, this American marketing firm came up with a very clever idea. They would put a cartoon on each package of medicine to help the people want to take the medicine. And I have that cartoon on a slide, which we can see on the screen. And so the cartoon is this. Here's this man who is obviously sick. He takes the pill. Suddenly, hallelujah, he's all better. But to everyone's surprise, instead of increasing use of the medicine, the use of the medicine went drastically downhill. Literally, no one was taking the medicine anymore. This, this campaign had totally failed, and no one knew why. And as they were all scratching their heads about how this had all gone so wrong, suddenly someone remembered that this medicine was being marketed in an Arabic-speaking country. Can you guess what happened? Arabic-speaking countries read from right to left. <laughs> And so here's this guy feeling great, and he takes the pill, and he's sick. Who in the world would want to take that medicine? That's an example of what I want you to think with me about today, worldview. We all have a worldview. We all have... Uh, filters or a set of eyeglasses that we put on, but they're the kind of glasses that once we put them on, we forget that they're there. 
And so we see the world constantly through these glasses. And only occasionally, as in this situation, do we take off the glasses and realize we actually have a worldview. Lots of the time, we don't even know we have one. It's like the iceberg, where the tiny tip of the iceberg is above the surface of the water, and 95% is unseen beneath the surface. Our worldview is just the way we think reality is. It's just the way we assume everyone in the world thinks, because everyone around us thinks that way. I invite you today to think about Jesus' resurrection from the perspective of worldview. But before we get there, just to review quickly, if you were here two weeks ago, we started talking about this great adventure, this great adventure that Jesus invites us to be a part of. And you heard in the gospel just a moment ago what Jesus calls it. Because the Mark, the very first gospel, records the very first words of Jesus, his very first recorded words that anyone heard from Jesus as this gospel was being read around the Mediterranean first century world. And Jesus announces what the gospel is, what the good news is. He says it came, he came preaching the gospel. And here it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you were like me, you grew up in a church that probably didn't think that was the gospel. They would have said the gospel is something else. Maybe eternal life, maybe going to heaven when you die. But in fact, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God 122 times in the gospels. The kingdom of God is what Jesus understands the gospel to be. And people must have been waiting for it because he says the time is fulfilled and now the kingdom of God is at hand. So this kingdom of God is actually the grand narrative of all of scripture. The kingdom of God is the story of scripture that begins in a good creation and then there's the fall where people fall away from God and they become broken and all creation is broken along with them. And then God sends prophets because God is going to rescue his people from this broken creation. God wants to renew and restore the creation back to the perfectness it was at the beginning. But these prophets come and they give us glimpses, the way Isaiah did in the Old Testament reading today, a glimpse of what this new creation will be like, what this, this new kingdom, when God makes everything right again, will be like. And in fact... Jesus uses the very words we heard from Isaiah to answer John the Baptist. Maybe you remember this story. John the Baptist, of all people, began to doubt who Jesus was. You remember that? I mean, he was the one who baptized Jesus. He introduced him to the world. And yet he began to doubt he was actually the Messiah they had been looking for. Why did he doubt? It was because of his worldview. Because the first century Jewish worldview expected the Messiah to be this warrior king like David that would come in and clean house. In fact, John even says that in Luke 3 when he introduces Jesus. He says, the winnowing fork is in his hand 
and he will separate the wheat and gather it into barns, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right. So where's the unquenchable fire? Where's burning up these hated Romans? And so John is puzzled. Jesus isn't living out the worldview that he was expecting. And so he sends his followers to ask the question. And that happens only four chapters later in Luke 7. Imagine that, from Luke 3 to Luke 7, John has lost faith in who Jesus is. And we read, starting in verse 20 of chapter 7 of Luke, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus cured many diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many that were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who takes no offense at me. You see, sometimes we think that Jesus' miracles are just kind of his way of proving that he was supernatural or that he had supernatural power. But in fact, his miracles were all the signs of the kingdom that Isaiah had predicted. And so when, when John is saying, are you the one? Jesus says, well, just look at the evidence. All the things predicted of the kingdom of God are coming true in me. And so you can believe I am who I am. But that wasn't the greatest shock. The greatest shock was still to come. Because in the first century worldview, they had a particular idea about when resurrection would happen. And we have a graphic to show you this. So the first century believers believed that the resurrection happened at the end of human history, the end of this present age. God was going to come, resurrect his people, and there would be a new kingdom, a new age where God was reigning and justice and evil had been totally destroyed. But wait a minute. If resurrection is the sign that the new age, the kingdom of God has begun and Jesus has been resurrected, then that means the kingdom of God is here now. It's already begun. This, this new age that's coming is actually here. And so from the worldview of Jesus, it looks like this in the next slide. Jesus' resurrection initiates the kingdom of God, this new age to come. And so now the present age and the age to come overlap because Jesus is already doing those things people thought would only happen in this future age to come. And so this overlap, this kingdom of God overlap, is often referred to as already but not yet. It's already here. Because Jesus is already doing the work of the kingdom. The kingdom is already present and at work in him. 
And it's already here because the greatest sign is Jesus' own resurrection itself, that the kingdom is now underway. But it's still not yet because it's not all happening instantly. It's happening little by little until the end of the age when Jesus returns and this present age ends and this new kingdom of God, new age, begins in all of its fullness. And so, how do we understand this? Well, one of the best analogies I have heard is what Jesus says in his parables. Jesus, in his own parables, tries, if we just have ears to hear, convince us that the kingdom of God is already here, but not completely. He tells us a parable of a mustard seed, where a tiny mustard seed is going to grow into a huge bush eventually, but it starts out the tiniest of all the seeds. He tells a parable about leaven. There's only a little bit in the lump of dough, but eventually it penetrates the whole lump. He tells a story uh, that John the Baptist would not have liked, that the wheat and the weeds are going to grow together. I'm not going to come and pull the weeds out right away. No, the wheat and the weeds are going to grow together until the final harvest, and then will come this final judgment in the unquenchable fire. One of the best ways I've understood this is to think of D-Day in World War II. So Europe was an occupied nation, being occupied by a brutal, evil empire, and suddenly there was an allied response into occupied territory that won the decisive battle. Historians agree, even the, G even the Germans realized that because of the Normandy battle, the war would eventually be won by the Allies. It was just a matter of time. And so it's like the Lion, the, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read that. What happens in Narnia? Suddenly, the Narnia that has become always winter but never Christmas, what happens? The snow begins to melt. And then Mr. Beaver and the other animals are saying, Aslan, the Christ figure, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is coming. Aslan has begun his reign, not in completeness, but the snow is melting. And God's reign, both over individuals and over all creation, is now underway. And we can know it, we can see it, we can believe it. But what if we misread the resurrection? What if we misread the resurrection in the way the people who designed those packages misread things? Because we, our American worldview tends to be individually focused, because our American worldview tends to be consumer-minded, we can misread the resurrection and believe it's just about us. It's just about me. Jesus died for me. That's very, very true. And we can be eternally thankful that he did. But Jesus died for more than just about me. We misread the resurrection when we think it's all about me. And when we misread the resurrection in that way, what happens? 
Well, we stay on the beach at Normandy. We're there on the sand, and we're watching Jesus and his followers, his army, go off over the hills into more occupied territories to liberate those territories from the oppression of evil while we stay on the beaches and build little shelters for ourselves. Because D-Day has happened. I can celebrate the victory that Jesus has died to overcome sin and evil. And so I simply stay on the sand dunes of Normandy, celebrating that victory and letting the war go on and play itself out as it will while I simply wait on the beach. That's not what the resurrection is about, is it? The resurrection is about God redeeming all creation and beginning, beginning with us. But friends, when we misread the resurrection in this way, when we think it's just all about me and we just stay celebrating the victory rather than moving forward with the army, something even more tragic happens. We miss the power of the resurrection. Because quite frankly, friends, the spiritual power of the resurrection is to equip soldiers, not bystanders. The spiritual power of the resurrection is to equip soldiers. People who want to join this grand adventure of the kingdom of God, people who want to follow Jesus away from the sand dunes of Normandy into all of those occupied territories that still need to be liberated from all the impression of evil. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, his great chapter about the spiritual gifts, where he says, every believer has a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. His whole chapter about spiritual gifts is to show us that by the power of the resurrection, we as a community can do everything that Jesus did on this earth. The same power that empowered Jesus to do what he did in the first century is available to us in the 21st century, even to the point of healing people and casting out demons, because there are spiritual gifts for those as well. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says Jesus is the first fruits, the foretaste of the resurrection, throughout his letters, Paul says that we are to be the first fruits, the foretaste of this kingdom of God, this reign of God that is marching across the face of the earth, bringing wholeness and help and justice wherever it comes. Friends, this is the adventure. It's grand, and it's huge, and it's inspiring. It's something you want to give your life to. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God, for he has won the victory for me. I can testify to this. 
Over and over again, I've seen with my own eyes what happens when churches take this great adventure seriously. When churches grasp that the kingdom of God is not only in the future, but is here with us right now and that we can actually participate in it. When, when churches believe that Jesus came not just so I could have a resurrection, but so that the whole cosmos could be renewed and restored back to the way God wanted it. When churches are supernaturally empowered to do today everything that Jesus did when he was on this earth. And when churches who are facing their own physical and emotional and spiritual suffering their own hardships, instead of turning inward to lick their wounds when they go through hard times, instead turn outward and find people to serve who are hurting even worse than they are. When these kinds of things begin to happen in churches, the church that we read about in the book of Acts is born again. And to those churches, as it says in Acts, the Lord adds daily to the number who are being saved. 75 years isn't a long time from now. 75 years, some of your children will still be alive. In 75 years, most of your grandchildren, it's well within their lifespans. Do you know that if current trends continue in 75 years, three out of every four Christians on this planet will live in Africa? 75% of all the Christians in the world will live in Africa. They must be doing something right. And I can say, because I've seen it with my own eyes again and again, when churches join the adventure that Jesus invites us to, which is called the kingdom of God, amazing things happen. So how does Paul land the plane? He's been up at 30,000 feet and now he lands the plane at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Does he land the plane by saying, because of Jesus' resurrection, you have a great resurrection to look forward to yourself? So relax, sit back, enjoy what the future will bring you. Is that what he says? No. He says, because of Jesus' resurrection, God's kingdom is on the march. So get to work, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For in the Lord, you know your labor is not in vain. May that be us. May that be EP.